0: Welcome to episode two of the Copper Island podcast, Aura. After losing everything during the 1913 Copper Strike, Wesley and Evie relocate to a promising agricultural settlement on Keweenaw Bay. A world away from the mines, they grapple with the past and work to start over and save what they have left, their marriage. When we arrived in Aura, The land was wild, untouched, and fertile, while the air pulsed with humidity and clouds. I surveyed the soil before me, tangled with weeds and clematis vines, trilliums and forget-me-nots. From a wall of shrubs, lush and plump thimbleberries dangled and swayed in the light breeze. Our new home sat to the side with three battered suitcases and a trunk on the porch. The furniture had been delivered last week and waited for us inside a simple frame bed and a kitchen table marked with two trails of crisscrosses carved into its legs, counting the years each of us had been in the United States. Our new land was fragrant with cedar and the unmistakable dampness of Lake Superior. It felt like home. It felt like Finland. Wesley smiled, and with his eyes closed he faced the sun, After spending years underground he loved nothing more than soaking in a cloudless sky beaming with streams of sunflower light. He outstretched his arms above his head as though he were asking God to deliver him an eternal summer. I hadn't seen him smile since he told me about the land and the cooperative and aura. He had been frowning since his last day at the Calumet and Hecla mine five years earlier. We struggled during the strike like so many other families. But it seemed to hit us harder than most we lost everything wesley's job our home and lenny in the mine wesley had been doing the work of a mule pushing tram cars full of rock up through the mine on an unstable track through a foot of water we didn't have enough money to replace his boots as often as he needed wesley came home from the mine after dark with whiskey on his breath every night the same He collapsed into the armchair in his wet boots with the laces tied too tightly. I knelt down in front of him and untied the brittle laces caked with dust and dirt and mud. He was young and old all at once, not a wrinkle on his face but so much pain in his bones. His feet were a mess, burning with sores and open wounds. I always had a cold compress ready for his blistered feet. After removing his boots and socks, I soaked a rag in ice water and cleaned the dirt out of his sores. Sometimes Wesley fell asleep in that chair. Sometimes he kissed me. Sometimes he read a book. Sometimes he wanted to be left alone. One time he told me I was as pretty as a dandelion and pulled a handful of drooping yellow weeds out of his pocket that he had picked on the way home. We had an unpredictable marriage, but Wesley never hurt me. It was a simple fact that we didn't know each other very well, or rather, he didn't know me very well. I could tell you everything about Wesley, because it was my job. He liked his potatoes boiled without salt. He never combed his hair, even for church on Sunday. He liked to dance, especially to a polka. He could eat a blackberry pie in one sitting and wash it down with a pint of milk. He liked to... To play practical jokes and games, even a tic-tac-toe game roused his competitiveness. One time, he challenged Omar Hassan, a Syrian miner, to an arm-wrestling match and lost, and Wesley had to bring him lunch for one full week. On the last day of bringing Omar lunch, that I packed, the miner had a coughing fit after he bit into a sandwich made out of chopped onions sprinkled with sand. I didn't make that one. Luckily, Omar Hassan had a sense of humor about it, and that was how they became friends. Best friends. By the end of the strike, Omar was our only friend. Although we were both from Finland, Wesley and I only knew each other in Michigan. Our parents were church friends in Finland and thought we would be a good match, so I made the long journey to Amik from Pori alone. Ivi Koskanimi, they recorded. Occupation, none. Read, yes. Write, yes. Nationality, Finland. Race, Finnish, City, pori. Final destination, amique. By whom passage was paid? Father. Whether in possession of $50 and if less, how much? $3. When my arrival was documented, I was legally and medically examined and on my way to Michigan. The cities fell away until I reached the Kewanah, magnificent in industry and landscape. I had never been anywhere with so many different types of people. Traveling through Houghton, three Chinese men stood under a sign that read Sam Wa Laundry. In Red Jacket, a church had been erected for nearly every nationality. Amik was quieter than Red Jacket, but an important stop for the Mineral Range Railroad. By the time I arrived in Amik, Wesley had already been working in the mines for three years. I stepped off of the train with my suitcase and examined a photo of Wesley in my hand as I had done on the train. I scanned the crowd for him, but it was hard to concentrate because a group of Italian men were frantically shouting and waving their arms in the air, barking in Italian above my head. One of them nudged me out of the way, and I nearly lost my photo of Wesley in the shuffle of their feet. Behind me, the women and children they were waiting for emerged. I recalled seeing them on the train, because they wore the most beautiful garments in the brightest colors, and they were the most beautiful women I had ever seen. There were five of them, two of them older and three that seemed my age, on the verge of starting their own adult lives. They had smooth skin and olive complexions, they wore long skirts and patent leather boots tooled with curling designs that weaved around each toe and shoelace hole. When one of them walked past me on the train for a meal, she left the scent of lemon, lavender, and orange blossoms behind. Two of them had wild, curly black hair. One wore it down, the other wore it piled on her head and tied with a red silk scarf. The older women wore their hair pinned back, and the other one had a short haircut that wasn't done very well, and stuck out in all directions. They all had deep dimples in their cheeks, The women with the curly hair were both visibly pregnant, and they had cried on the train several times. I wondered if these men were their husbands or their brothers or fathers, but they were all so equally affectionate during their reunion it was difficult to tell. As I slipped out of the way to avoid being trampled by the family reunion, I continued my search for Wesley. I walked toward a row of blonde men who seemed Finnish or Swedish, and when I got closer I understood the language they were Finns. I looked at Wesley's photo again, a grainy black-and-white shot of his family that had his head circled. Nothing distinguished him except that he was short, for a man. He had strawberry blonde hair, which I knew from his letters, and a chipped front tooth from boyhood mischief. Evie, I heard my name in a man's voice. Is that you? Wesley and I married three days later. He sensed I was someone who wouldn't put up much of a fuss about anything. It wasn't that I couldn't bother, I simply knew when the battle was worth fighting. Wesley seemed like a decent man at the time, and he remained decent. I did love him, after everything we had been through together. He was as sturdy as a boulder and I convinced myself that I was very lucky. After all, some women went through the unmentionable. I knew those women. Wesley and I were a team. We didn't need to be on fire for each other. Evie, would you look at this? Wesley said. This is our land. He spit a mosquito out of his mouth and limp- limped toward the newly constructed shack that was now our home. He had been badly injured in the mine before the strike, so the limp was permanent. A half full tramcar rolled over his leg, leaving him permanently maimed. And after the strike, Calumet and Hecla let Wesley go. Said they had no use for half a man, a man who couldn't walk right. They called him an unskilled Neanderthal, at best. Wesley could read and write perfect English, but they refused to find an office job or something less demanding on his legs. The home in Oro was much more modest than our mining home, but it was sturdy and warm, the two most important characteristics for getting through an Upper Peninsula winter. Constructed out of old barnwood, our new homestead was enough for the two of us to start a farm and have a garden. It was enough to start over, enough room to breathe away from the boss's hand feeding us. It was a hard lesson for a man to learn, that the only way to take care of yourself was to do it on your own time, not company time. But I knew in Aura we would find success. We both grew up on farms. We knew how to massage the land to bear fruits for survival and beauty. We knew what to expect from a deep frost or a dry season. Land was easy to reason with. There is a surprise for you inside, Leslie said. He stepped over a fallen log to reach for me and held out his hand. I grasped it and followed him to the house and through the front door. A weaving loom. There it stood in the plain wooden room like a monument. I had always dreamed of having a loom after seeing other women sell their woven rugs at the church. I learned to weave rugs when I was a child in Finland. My older sister, Greta, taught me. We had a community loom when we lived in Red Jacket, but after Lenny, well, I didn't do much of anything after that. I lost all care and all energy. But now, starting over and with a new loom, my fortune seemed as promising as it was when I stepped off of the platform in Amik so many years ago. The loom was a symbol of a new start, although I had no idea how Wesley afforded it. Wesley, but how? I was astounded. I ran my hands along the beam, imagining what I could make with it dreaming about selling my own rugs, soaking up the smoothness of the wood in contrast to the rugged landscape outside. Wesley smiled again the way he did the first day we met. A lightning bug flickered through my heart. I didn't give Wesley enough credit for his feelings about Lenny. I accused him of being cold, distant, and dismissive. I yelled at him every night for months. I threw pots at his head, I poured a cup of buttermilk into his work boots. I told Wesley I hated him. He said he hated me more than he hated pushing the tramcar. Lenny was born on Christmas Day in the first year of our marriage, after 55 hours of labor. After I blacked out, after losing so much blood I thought I was going to die, after they thought Lenny was dead, after Wesley was late from work because the mine elevator got stuck and he didn't know where I was when he got home. When I held Lenny for the first time, I forgot about all of that. He was truly a Christmas angel, completely bald with sleepy blue eyes and thin red lips, but the chubbiest thighs I had ever seen. I swear he had a halo made of downy hair and stardust. We named him Lenny Omar Salo. The name was a testament to Wesley's tender heart, having chosen Omar after his good and kind friend. I chose Lenny because it sounded like someone named Lenny would grow up with a cheery disposition. Someone named Lenny sounded like a happy-go-lucky optimist, a person that everyone would love and respect, a man who would grow up to be successful, educated, go to college, start a business. I saw his entire life in that name. When Omar came to visit him, I had never seen such a large man cry over such a tiny person. Omar was nearly eight inches taller than Wesley, with wide shoulders and carved biceps, a tapered waist and hearty legs. Omar rocked Lenny back and forth, a natural, with the baby. He knew what he was doing more than I did because he had been around more children. All of Omar's sisters had more than five children, and he was their favorite uncle because he was so big he could pile them on his back like a horse. We decided Omar was the perfect godfather. Omar would protect Lenny, would love him as much as we did, as much as Omar loved us. To be honest, I had no expectations for motherhood. I thought it was what I had to do and never thought to do anything else. It was a terrible attitude, but when Lenny was born, I softened. My heart changed. But he was a peculiar baby, warbling like a red winged blackbird, impatient, and Lenny never sounded comfortable when he cried. The doctor said he would grow out of it, that nothing was wrong, but the older Lenny got, the more his gurgles and gargles and crying sounded more painful. It was unbearable to not be able to fix it. The more he cried, the more I cried. Wesley had no patience for it after mining all day, so the warped crying made him yell, and the whiskey made him say the unthinkable, until one morning the unthinkable actually happened. The gurgles stopped. The warbling stopped. The uncomfortable crying that never seemed right stopped. We buried Lenny five months after he was born, with only Omar and the pastor at our side. There was still snow on the ground, but we managed to bury him by melting a patch of ice and cutting through the earth as though it were a piece of chocolate cake. The tiny box was cobbled together with scraps of wood, and thanks to Omar's generosity, we were able to leave Lenny behind in the Lakeview Cemetery. It wasn't my first death, but it was the most profound. For my entire life, I felt as though I were waiting for something, waiting to feel, waiting for a bombastic moment I would want to hold on to with so much intensity that my heart wanted to shatter. And it was at that moment I realized how much I loved my baby, and I couldn't believe it was too late. My sweet Lenny, the baby with the cry of a bird who never seemed quite right, who only smiled when he was dreaming, but not when he was awake. I barely got to know him. We tossed dirt on the box, each of us a handful. The pebbles thumped and tumbled against the wood like a drum. I wanted to climb into the box with him. Omar had one arm around me, one around Wesley. He hugged us so tightly, so hard that it hurt, but he didn't know. He was grieving, too, and I was so ridden with guilt, I wondered if all this time Omar had cared about Lenny more than I did. It was all so much to take in, so much to feel. Every thought was a mixed message. Did we do enough? Did I love my baby enough? Is this all there is? I left my flesh and blood in the cold dirt, left him behind in the dead remnants of winter all around. Not even the robins had come around yet. I held all of this inside. Not even Calumet and Hecla could unearth this grief out of me. Wesley and I never had more children. We never brought it up. And when the copper strike began, it was out of the question. Wesley was out of work and wanted to work. But when nothing was gained after the strike, the mind didn't want to take a man with a limp back. We lost our income, and then our company home. Calumet and Hekla left us desolate. And Omar took us in. If this was the land of opportunity, I wondered why a decent man had to sell his body and soul to comfortably sit on his couch at night. I have been saving for this since Lenny, Wesley said about the loom. I am sorry it took so long. I breathed in sharply. He never brought up Lenny. He never said his name. A new home? A new loom? I let my voice trail off. I felt his love deep in my core as I never had. He finally acknowledged the grief, the great divider. He didn't have to say it for me to know it was true. He said his name. That was all I needed to hear to hear that our son existed and that Wesley remembered him. Here was my old Wesley, a little more weathered, but he still stood by me. There is a general store here, Wesley said. You can sell rugs, blankets, whatever you make. Or you can keep them all, give them away, keep someone warm. Thank you, Wesley, I said. He moved toward me and took both of my hands into his. I felt the calluses on his finger knead my palms gently as he pulled me closer. Wesley and I stood eye to eye, our faces inches apart. His neck smelled of pine, his skin was bronze but the collar of his frayed blue shirt revealed a sliver of white skin that was never touched by the sunlight. Wesley smiled again, a boyish lopsided grin. For a moment, I was in Amique again, getting off of the platform of the train, knowing I was about to meet a boy and marry him. But what we had now was so much stronger, so real, as tight as the fibers woven into any rug or garment. When a Finnish woman wove a rug, the weave never unraveled. Wesley and I, we would never unravel, not after all we had been through. I looked into his blue eyes and wondered if this is what people talked about when they said love grows, love blossoms. Love really was patient and kind. Love kept no record of wrongs. "'Hold still,' Wesley whispered, and gently kissed me on one cheek, then the other, then my forehead, then my chin. Heat ran through me, and I was surprised to find out that I still had emotions. For so long, I didn't want to have them, pretended not to have them. This was the greatest kiss, the most tender and loving kiss I had ever felt. The kiss of understanding, the kiss of knowing, the kiss of thankfulness for having your child and burying your child and clawing your way out of the turmoil of loss. The kiss that said, thank you for sticking with me. It was the kiss I had been waiting for my entire life. Standing in our new home by the magnificent new loom, the avalanche of emotion I thought I would never feel, but did only one other time, it electrified me again. We didn't have to say the words. We wove them together long ago. Thank you for listening to the Copper Island Podcast. If you would like to learn more about the show, including accessing show notes and more, please visit copperislandpodcast.com.